Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain did they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you do, whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God and by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Back in Matthew chapter 5, again, today our text, verse 17 through 20. Ronald Reagan, he's my favorite U.S. president. I I think a lot of him interested in his story, how he was used while he was president. He was once asked why, you know, he he was a Democrat at one time. Did you know that? But he left the Democratic Party and he was, he was asked why he had left that party, and Reagan said, I didn't leave the Democrats, the party left me. And something similar could be said about the religious leaders of Jesus' day. See, the Lord, as we sing, and I'm so appreciative of Blake and, and Jenny working on music. You know, they choose songs. You don't think, hey, get here Sunday morning to sing, hey, let's just sing these random songs. No, they spend time thinking, contemplating the text, how we can pair the, the truth of the text with the true songs that we sing, and they spend a lot of time with that. And, and Blake, as he's doing transitions and leading confession time and all the people that's leading that, helping them, uh, coaching them through that, he thinks a lot about that. So a lot of the, the songs that we sing today have to do a lot with our text, but think about the God is eternal, and he is unchangeable. He's constant, and his word is eternal, and it's constant. It never changes, never will change. And although Jesus was accused of leaving orthodoxy, he was accused of teaching something new, he was accused of being a heretic. It was actually during the time of the intertestamental period between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that the religious leaders left God. They left Scripture. 
They left orthodoxy and they left it for their own traditions. We'll see that today in our text. But we are in the middle of this greatest sermon ever preached. It's been our text last several months. And the first part of this sermon, the Beatitudes, the attitudes that ought to be. Jesus tells us what a kingdom citizen looks like. He tells us what the truly blessed person lives like, acts like. Jesus is describing a Christian in the Beatitudes. In the first few Beatitudes, the first four, we see a description of how one approaches God. And how does, how does one approach the holy God, the great God? Well, he approaches him as a spiritual beggar, realizing he is poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. This causes him to be broken over his sin. And godly sorrow, we know, leads to what? Repentance. This results in this kingdom citizen approaching God humbly. And not only approaching God humbly, but man humbly. We're meek, aren't we? And we have a desire to obey God. We have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to obey Him in all that we do. This is who we are, believer. This is painting a portrait of what we are and what we should be. But as we approach God such a way we we also approach others differently also don't we we're merciful towards others we have compassion and this is compassion in action we are pure in heart that means we when we make decisions in life we go to the Lord we want to know what the Lord thinks about our decision and we act accordingly kingdom citizens are also wanting others to be at peace. We're peacemakers. We want people to be at peace not only with God, but with, with one another, with man. And when others mistreat us because of this heart change, because of what God is doing in our lives, we'll respond how? Not bitterness, not maliciously, but we respond with gladness, counting it all joy that we could be in the company of such men and women like the apostles and like the prophets who were persecuted and mistreated. And then the text that Chris taught last week, verse 13 through 16, we see the effects of such godliness. This inner godliness results in us being different than the world. And I appreciate what he taught last week. He said that the world knows that we Christians, we citizens of the kingdom, are supposed to be different. Think about it. What, what happens when you fly off the handle or you're Maybe being a little harsh with folks. People of the world, worldly people would say, well, hey, you're, they may say, you're a hypocrite or you're not, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. See, by saying that, they're actually identifying and, and they know that, yeah, Christians are supposed to be set apart. We're to live differently. We're to live in such a way that we influence other people in our sphere of influence that we work with and play with and live with. So we're to be sought and we're to be lying. What about you? Can you say that you are salt and you are light in your community, in your workplace, in your home? Well, how does this sermon relate to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant, to the law? Well, verse 17 through 20 is going to tell us that. Three points this morning from our text, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. 
The first point is that Jesus was misunderstood. He didn't oppose the law as was once thought, but he fulfilled it. Let's read this text, if we will, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus, his preaching was so entirely different on the days that he walked this earth it was so different from the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the people erroneously thought that he was substituting his own words in the law's place. They thought he was teaching something radically different because he despised their traditions of the elders. The religious leaders supposed him to be a deceiver trying to destroy Judaism that they knew because he threw far more emphasis upon great moral principles than upon ceremonial institutions, many concluded that he had rejected the entire Levitical system because he was a proclaimer of grace and a dispenser of mercy. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The idea began to circulate that he was opposed to the law of God, the Old Testament. See, truth had been lost in Jesus' day. And because the Lord Jesus didn't echo the theology of the day, he was regarded as a, a heretic. And see, what Jesus did is he refused to identify with any other group within Judaism. He, he didn't identify with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians or the Essenes. And because of that, he was outside them all. People wondered what his real attitude towards the law and the prophets were. But Jesus never came to set aside or oppose the Old Testament scriptures, but he came to fulfill them. And when I say law and the prophets, as we, we see here in the text, verse 17, he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. What do we mean? Well, what we're talking about there is the, the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Covenant, the law and the prophets. So when I say law and prophet, or when I say the law, what I'm referring to is the whole entire Old Testament. That's what I'm referring to this, this, during this teaching time. Well, how did Christ fulfill the law? He fulfilled it, in, firstly, in his teaching, in his doctrine. See, what he was trying to do is restore to the law its proper meaning and its true use. He was revealing the, the right way in which the law should be fulfilled. See, the law wasn't rungs on a ladder in order for us to attain our own righteousness. But the law was a, a tutor meant to show us our depravity, our ineptness, and our need for a Savior. So Jesus fulfilled the law in his teaching, in his doctrine. He also fulfilled the law in their messianic predictions. The, the entire Old Testament had a prophetic function. And that was fulfilled in Christ. I mean, think about the place of his birth was told to us in the Old Covenant. How the type of death he would suffer. Jesus fulfilled all of those messianic predictions. Christ filled the law by being perfect. He obeyed the law, didn't he? 
in everything he did. And he, he perpetually obeyed its teachings. And then he fulfilled the law by suffering its penalty, enduring the death on the cross for sinners. Another way Jesus fulfilled the law is by giving the Holy Spirit to us believers, us new covenant believers. In Romans chapter 8, verse 2 through 4, it says this, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And isn't that the, the promise we, we see in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19 and 20? Ezekiel had a, had a prediction that there's going to be a, a new covenant. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone and their flesh and give them a heart of, or get, remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I'll be their God. There's a fulfillment here as Jesus gives the spirit, his spirit to believers so they can obey and they can walk in obedience and, and do what God wants them to do. And so Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets in a, multifaceted, dynamic way. And in no way did he destroy the law, but he completely superseded it and fulfilled it. And we could talk about how he fulfilled the law in other ways, but you could summarize that by saying Jesus himself was the object towards which the Old Testament pointed. We're familiar with the text that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. All the Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus. And Jesus filled all of the law. We should stand in awe of the Lord because he's the author of the law, but he's also the fulfiller of it. And Jesus had been accused of resisting and ignoring the law because he brought an end to the ceremonial law, if you will, such as the sacrifice of the dietary system. But that doesn't amount to him abolishing the law, but rather fulfilling it. He wasn't doing away with it. He was completing it. A.W. Pink says, The ceremonial law that uh, has not been destroyed by Christ, but the substance now fills the place of its shadows. See, all the things, all the, the sacrificial system, all the things that the Old Testament was pointing to, it points to Christ. The whole purpose of the Old Testament is uh, to point us to Jesus, to the Messiah who would come to take away the sins of the world. If you think about the, the law, you can be broken down in three different ways. You have the ceremonial law. That's the, the, the way of the sacrificial system, the Levitical priest, the high priest, how they're to, to handle all the sacrifices and to, to handle worship. Then you had the judicial law. When those violated the law, how were they to be punished? Remember the, the, the young people, the children that lived in the home, if they were disrespectful and dishonored their parents, the scriptures told them that they were to be stoned by the, the people in their community. And then you had the moral law. So you had the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and then the moral law. And we, know, we know the moral law by the Ten Commandments. And we know that those first two parts of the law, the ceremonial law and the judicial law, that was given specifically to the, the nation of Israel. And we know that Jesus, he fulfilled those commands. He, 
And sometimes they say, well, because Jesus came, we don't, we don't have to worry about the ceremonial laws and we don't have to worry about the judicial laws. We just have to worry about the moral laws. Well, actually, we're, we're given the, the old covenant and we're to obey the old covenant completely. But see, we, we, we could never do that. So what did Jesus do? The ceremonial law, the judicial law, the moral law, he obeyed it completely. So we wouldn't have to. Look at verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Some of your translations may say not a jot nor a tittle will be will pass away until it's all accomplished. And what Jesus is doing here is saying that that jot is the, the smallest Hebrew letter. And the tittle was a, just a and the jot was, looks like an apostrophe. It's a small letter. And what Jesus is saying is the smallest little letter, the smallest little uh, uh, punctuation mark, none of those things will be taken away. None of these things will be done away with. until. Uh, and what he's saying there, Jesus is saying, I love the Old Covenant. I love the Old Testament law. And we'll see that in Psalm 19. We should love the law as well, but Jesus loved the law. He said it's, it's, it's inerrant, it's infallible, and it's inspired. The word of the Lord will last forever. In fact, Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Jesus said. So what Jesus is saying is, I love the law. I'm not abolishing the law. I came to fulfill it. The second point we see in our text that the religious leaders of Jesus' day misunderstood the law's purpose. Jesus was, he just declared that he was an Old Testament lover. He loved the Old Covenant. He held that it was eternal and unchangeable. And the thing about it is, the things that Jesus is preaching and teaching while he was on earth, if, if Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Isaiah, if King David were all sitting in the congregation are all sitting on this, on this um, mountainside listening to Jesus preach. You know what they'll be doing? They'll be giving a head nod. That's right. They'll be giving a head nod. You know, when you agree with something, I look at you and you can identify with it. You just kind of nod your head in agreement, right? They'll be giving a head nod. They'll be giving a attaboy. They'll be giving an amen. They'll be giving a preach it, preach it, brother. That's what they'd be doing. But verse 19, whoever, whoever relaxes one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus had just said. Now could the Pharisees say the, the same thing? Whoever relaxes the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Could the Pharisees say the same thing? Jesus says, I love the law. I'm not opposing the law. I'm not changing the law. I love the law. It's wonderful. It's eternal. It's unchangeable. I wouldn't change it for anything. You can't change the word. But could the Pharisees say that? I, I think not. And we see evidence in that from other texts. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Speaking about the Jews, those who didn't believe that Christ was the Messiah. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, they, they seek to establish their own righteousness. See, the law was given not so, to be rungs on a ladder. No. But the religious leaders, they had gotten it wrong. They had gotten off course. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. Morgan read for us, Mark chapter 7, there the Pharisees were upset because of what reason? Do you remember from the text he read this morning, Mark chapter 7? They weren't washing their hands properly. Verse 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. That's not a bad thing, is it? Especially during our day and time. My hands are just cracked. We, we, we traveled from place to place, and everywhere we went, you wore a mask. And, you know, any place you went in public, you wore a mask in, in buildings. And, and everywhere we went, we were washing hands uh, just because of this epidemic. And it's a good thing to do anyway, but my hands are just dry and cracked because I washed my hands so much and all the alcohol from the hand sanitizer and whatnot. Now, that's good. Washing your hands is, is, is good, right? They don't eat unless they wash. You got the next text there? And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, washing things, that's, that's a good thing. We need to keep good hygiene. Take a shower, wash your hands, brush your teeth. All those things are wonderful. But these, what had happened, these were traditions that the Jews, the religious leaders, kept. And oftentimes Jesus was rebuked for not keeping these traditions. And these traditions are what's called the oral law. You have the written law, which is the, the, the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. But you have, within Jewish circles, you have, Claire Beth, you have what's called the oral law. Now, the oral law was a bunch of traditions that the scribes came up with. Is there looking through the, the law of God, for example, Exodus chapter 20 tells us the, the Ten Commandments. What's the fourth commandment? Do you remember? We, we teach this to our children, to our adults. We've been, we just started doing it, or teaching to our children, our students. We, we started doing it with our adults. Adults, no children, no students. Don't answer. The fourth commandment. Do you know which one? The fourth commandment. What's the fourth commandment? You're doing hand signals. You've got to do hand signals. That's the way you remember it. The fourth commandment, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, right? Because you're taking a nap on the Sabbath. You're going to sleep today, right? Right? Yeah, you remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't work on the Sabbath. Remember it and keep it holy. Now, that's, that's good. We need to keep that commandment. But what qualifies as work? Now, they're scribes. They're the preachers of the day. And what they did is they began to contemplate, well, what, is, what does it mean to, to work? And we need, to, we need to clarify that a bit. And so this is what came to be the oral law. Is they, they tried to figure out, well, what does it mean to work? And they decided in order to protect the law and make sure everyone keeps the law, Lynn, we're going to come up with a bunch of other rules to help you keep the law. Okay, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Don't work on the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath day. Okay, let's think about this. Well, how far can you walk on a Sabbath day before it becomes work? Well, they came up with an answer. You can walk 
1,999 paces, something under 2,000 paces, 800 meters. Anything above that is work. Tying a knot, untying a knot, considered work. Can't do that. As a physician, if someone had dislocated a, a foot or a hand, you couldn't set a dislocated bone. Wait till tomorrow. Come back. If your roof fell in, if you had a, a roof that had fallen, you couldn't repair it. But you could move the stuff to make sure no one's underneath it. You could do that, but you couldn't repair it on, on the Sabbath because that would be considered work. And so these scribes, they come up with this oral tradition so we would know exactly what work means. And so they wanted to come up with every scenario. They thought of every scenario and come up with a solution to clarify what work meant. Now, what happened, the Pharisees, they weren't the preachers, the, the clergy, the professionals, but they were a group of laymen. And they developed during the intertestamental period. And what they were committed to doing was keeping the law. But eventually what happens? You have the scribes coming up with all these rules called the Mishnah. You have the, the Pharisees who are trying to keep the law and make sure they, they did everything the scribes told them to do. So what happens? is What happens is you lose sight of the law and you begin to focus on the oral tradition. So the law becomes inconsequential. We don't even think about that anymore. We're just thinking about what the, the scribes said. It's kind of like us when we, we have our scriptures. We have the Bible. But you get to where you don't read the Bible. You just begin to read commentaries on what other people think the Bible says. Now, that's, that can be helpful, but you can see that's a problem because what's infallible, what's inerrant? The scriptures, the law, right? So what happens, this Mishnah, this oral tradition... There were other commentary written about it. So you have this, this is what, this is the law. Then you have, okay, this is what work is and what work is not. And there's other commentary written about what the scribe said. And that's called the Gemara. And that's put together in what's called the Talmud. And you're thinking, I don't really care about all this. That's okay. But the Talmud, that's what the Jews, even today, that's what they, they hold dear. They have the Old Testament scriptures, which is the written law. And then they have the oral law, which is called the Talmud. And what happens is you begin to place so much emphasis on the oral tradition, what man thinks the law says, you forget what the law's purpose was. And that's what happens with the Pharisees. That's what happened when Jesus was born. That's the culture in which he was born into during the Roman Empire. Jewish culture was one in such that focus was on the oral tradition and not so much on the law. And what the Lord Jesus did is he persistently and publicly chose to violate these traditions and to preach against them over and over again. We see that in the text. We see it in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 2. Turn there in Mark chapter 2. Flip over to the right. Mark chapter 2. If you have the Pew Bible, it's page 996. We see this happen over and over again. So if you know that and you read through the, 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 the Gospels, you'll see over and over again Jesus coming in conflict with the religious leaders. They're, they're having conflict. Why? Because Jesus doesn't give a rip about their tradition. And they think the tradition is so important. And Jesus is like, I don't give a rip about that. Mark chapter 2. Another incident here. One Sabbath, verse 23. One Sabbath, again, remember the fourth commandment? Keep the Sabbath day, right? Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, don't work. 
On one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they, meaning he and the disciples, made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, what does the Scripture say? The Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Don't work. Okay, I got that. But what he and the disciples were doing, they're walking. And it's kind of like my dad and I, we do when we're rabbit hunting. We grew up rabbit hunting. We always had a, uh, a pen full of beagles. And we would rabbit hunt. And we didn't hunt um, just for an hour or two. Usually, especially on Saturdays, we'd hunt most of the day. We'd go early in the morning and we'd just hunt until we all got tired. But we hunted around cotton fields, around soybean fields. And um, sometimes you get hungry because rabbit hunting, you don't see it. You walk the whole time. You burn off a lot of calories. You get hungry. So we're walking through the soybean fields. And so what we would do, my dad and I, is we'd pick those soybeans and we'd eat those soybeans, kind of like a snack. Any of you ever done that? You ever had soybeans? Yeah, they taste pretty good. Now, some of you are going like, oh, eating soybeans, raw soybeans in the field. And this is what I tell people. Children, a lot of kids from church come to our house. And we eat, I don't know anybody that eats as well as we do. I mean, we eat really good. We eat good food, a lot of different things, a lot of different types of food, a lot of vegetables. Leanne would love it. We eat a lot of vegetables. And um, we raise a lot of our stuff. Last night we had supper, and I'm looking there going, there's, there's chicken and everything else we raised ourselves, you know? Like, man, I'm loving this. Um, and kids will come over, and they want to try eat something. I'll look at them, I'll say, have you ever eaten, whatever, asparagus? And they're like, no. I'm like, do you like asparagus? They go, no. I'm like, don't ever say that again. You don't know if you liked it unless you tried it. Now, once you try it and you tell me you don't like it, that's okay. So as I'm saying, we're walking through the fields, Rodney, and we're picking up, picking soybeans, dry soybeans, and eating them. And you're looking, you know, some of you are looking at me like, that's gross. No, have you ever tried it? It's pretty good. So that's what we would do, just casually walking through. We're hunting, and we just pick some of those soybeans and, and eat them. Well, that's what's happened on the Sabbath, is Jesus and his disciples are walking through the, the fields. They just walking through the fields. They reach down there and grab some grain, and they just a little snack. And the Pharisees thinks it's terrible. Why? Because it's breaking oral tradition. We didn't say anything in the Ten Commandments about picking up grain on Sabbath and eating as you're casually walking by. But according to their oral tradition, they were breaking, breaking the law. And Jesus, he time and time again rebukes them for this. Matthew 23, it's a great commentary on his attitude towards the Pharisees. Over and over again, it's woe is, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. And that's a bad thing if Jesus says, woe is you. Woe to you. That's a bad thing. And Jesus says it over and over again in Matthew 23, 25. Jesus says, he calls them blind guides. He says, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Now, let me re re explain what that means. Um, any of you have buckets laying around your house, buckets or anything that catches water. Now, especially in the summertime, time like now, there's a lot of rain. What do you do? Do you want to make sure you have a lot of those buckets holding water around your house? Is that a good thing? No, why? Mosquitoes. Yeah, what happens? Mosquitoes, there's a lot of larvae in the water. And if you don't dump that water out, what happens to that larva? They grow, and you're going to have a lot of mosquitoes around your house. So what do you do? You dump all that water out. Make sure there's no setting water, stagnant water. Well, the same is true for these gnats. You have larvae in the water. What, would the, what they would do is because you couldn't eat anything unclean. Well, a gnat is considered unclean. What would they do? They would make sure they strain, strain their water to make sure they didn't accidentally drink a, a, a larva from a gnat. Yeah, it's kinda, that is kind of gross, probably. No, I couldn't say that because I've never eaten it. 
So I wouldn't say that, but it's most likely a, not a good thing. But they would strain that out because according to their oral tradition, yeah, that, you, you, you had to strain your water. You can't really drink this water from the well. You got to strain it out because you wouldn't want to accidentally swallow a, a larva from a gnat because that would be unclean and you would be unclean. See what I'm saying? That's what they would do. They're, they're, they're orchard. But he says you, you would swallow a camel. In other words, your, your focus is off. Your focus on things that aren't important. Your oral tradition, that's not important. You're trying to keep your oral tradition and you're forgetting what the law states. You're, you're getting way off. The law's purpose was to do what? What's the law's purpose? It's not rungs on a ladder. We can keep these things and do these things so we can attain righteousness, so we can climb the ladder to God. What's the, the law's purpose? Yeah, the law's purpose is to crush us. It really is. That's the purpose of the law. The law's purpose, the, the law is, is, is God's standard for our lives. And its standard is perfection. The standard is godliness, to be just like God. Well, who can attain it? You can't climb the rungs of the ladder to get there. You can't attain it. So the purpose of the law is to show us that we can't attain it. You had to show us God's will. You had to show us God's character. But most importantly, to show us we're so not like God. To show our ineptness and our depravity and our sin. Romans 3, 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The Pharisees, they didn't know that. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, instead of seeing the law for what it was, yeah, man, that's, that's unattainable. I can't do it. They saw the law and the, and the oral tradition around it. They said, you know, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. Make sure I got all my ducks in a row. All the, the I's dotted and all the T's crossed. No, you, you can't. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 25. So then the law was our guardian or, or tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by how? Not by works, but by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We don't need a tutor now because Christ has come. What's the law, What's the law for? The law is to crush us and to let us see our sin. So the Pharisees, they were to be crushed by the law and broken over their sin. Not, not trying to keep the law so they could attain the righteous, but to understand that, wow, apart from God's help, I have no hope. I need a, a redeemer. I need a, a savior. Martin Luther, he said, the law humbles them, not to their destruction, but to their salvation. For God woundeth that he may heal again. He killeth that he may quicken again. It's interesting when the law was given, the law was given to Moses, and he delivered it to the people of Israel. He was the lawgiver. God gave it to Moses, and then he delivered it to the people of God. But isn't it, isn't it interesting how Moses was paired with Aaron? Aaron was Moses' brother. What was Aaron's job? What was Aaron's job? What did he do? What was his title? Moses was the lawgiver. Yeah, Aaron was the high priest. See, they're paired together. You don't have the law. You don't have Moses without Aaron. See, Moses gives the law. And what does it do? It crushes us. Ugh. We're such sinners. Then you have Aaron. He's the high priest. 
making sacrifices so people could approach the Lord. Without Moses, there's no Aaron. Without the law, there's no Christ. Or with the law, there is Christ. The law crushes us so that we can see our need. See our need for a Savior, for a Redeemer, for a sacrifice to be made for us. The law pointed out sin and the sacrifice was given so atonement could be made. The law and the sacrificial system, what do they do? They point us to Christ. Christ fulfilled that role as law keeper and as sacrifice. So Jesus came to fill the law, not to abolish it. He came to fill the law that the religious leaders had distorted. And thirdly, look at verse 20. We must have Christ's righteousness to go to heaven, to approach God, to know God. We have to have Christ's righteousness. See, the religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular, were known as the conservative leaders in the church. Now, that's interesting. They were giving honor in their, in their culture, in their society. They were given a lot of honor and position. So we think negatively about the Pharisees, don't we? We think negatively about them. Because we're on the backside of Jesus' exposure of them. But in their day, they were highly regarded. They were given places of honor. They were esteemed. They were looked up to. They were the cream of the religious crop. But their so-called righteousness was just outward. See, they didn't have God's heart. They're trying to keep all the rules, the oral tradition. Luke 18, 11 through 12. Jesus tells a story of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and they go to the temple, and the tax collector, he doesn't even look up to God. He just sits there and beats his breast, and all he says is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But what does the Pharisee do? The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes that all I get. The Pharisees, their righteousness was not God-glorifying, but was self-glorifying. So I ask us today, the righteousness you have, is it self-glorifying? In other words, does it make yourself look good, or is it God-glorifying? Think about that. The Pharisees, they're keeping all the oil tradition, neglecting the the real meaning of the law, keeping the oral tradition. It was self-glorifying. They could say, look, I'm not like them. Look what I do. But the righteous from God is God-glorifying. I mean, if, if you stood before the Lord and He asked you, why should I let you into heaven? It's an old evangelism explosion question, but it's great. I use that all the time to see where people are and what they're thinking, how they understand the gospel. Why should I let you into heaven? If the Lord asked you that, what would you say? The religious leaders would say, because I did this and I did that and I didn't do these things. What about you? Why should the Lord let you into heaven? Why should He allow you to spend eternity with Him? Is it because you've been good? You've done something? 
you didn't do this other bad stuff that other people do? What should the answer be? The answer should be, I have no righteousness on my own. My righteousness comes imputed to me by Jesus who died for my sin and rose from the grave that I might be justified. You know, what's the proper answer to that question? I have no righteousness of my own. The righteousness that I have comes from Christ. Because Jesus lived for me. He fulfilled the law, obeyed perfectly for me. I don't give you my record. I don't stand by my own record. I have Jesus' record. Jesus obeyed perfectly. The ceremonial law, the judicial law, the moral law. Completely obeyed it for me on my behalf. Because he died on the cross as my atoning sacrifice, making propitiation for my sin. I can tell the Lord, Jesus died for me. My righteousness is his righteousness and his alone. The law requires perfect obedience and pronounced death to anyone who broke the law. But the gospel points us to Christ who fulfilled the law for us. That's why Jesus is called in, in Romans 10 for the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law because he's who the law points to and he's who fulfilled the law and kept it. So how do we apply this text today? It's a difficult text. You, small group leaders, Chris and Blake, Rodney, you're going to have a you have a heyday with this one because there's a lot of meat on the bones, a lot of things we could talk about uh, in more detail. We're out of time. Next week, you can be in your small group. You can learn more about the law and how Christ fulfilled it. But how do we apply this to our lives? Adrian, I think first thing is we should love the law of God. Don't dismiss it. With it. Well, I'm a, new, I'm a new covenant believer. I'm a Christian, so I, I've spent a lot of time reading the New Testament. Well, that's good. You should read the New Testament. We should also read the Old Covenant as well. The radical righteousness Christ lived and taught, including here in the Sermon on the Mount, is it's not out of line with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Christ's righteousness is radical not because it's new, but because he lived it. He obeyed it. He fulfilled it. Psalm 19, verse 7 through 10 The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The old covenant, the old the law and the prophets, we should know it. We should read it. We should study it. We should love it. Secondly, Jesus', Jesus righteousness, his righteousness exceeded that of the religious leaders because he fulfilled the law. Do you have his righteousness? See, your righteousness is no good. It doesn't measure up. Do you have Christ's righteousness? There's a lot of people, a large group of folks in our culture today, might call them the religious, fr religiously frustrated. 
what they do is they, they constantly are pulling themselves by their own bootstraps and they're trying to attain some righteousness on their own. They go to church, they read their Bible, they memorize scripture, they give money, they do this, they do that, do this. Because they think by doing those things, they're attaining some righteousness. And because they do this stuff and they don't do this other bad stuff, that they're going to somehow go to heaven. They're really frustrated because they can't, in their own strength and flesh, in their own energy and effort, they can't attain the standard God requires, that the law requires. Is that you? Are you frustrated because you are trying to do all these things on your own, trying to attain your own righteousness? If that's you, you need to give that up. Be crushed by the law of God and surrender your life to Christ. Because only in Christ can we be justified. Only in Christ can we be righteous. Only in Christ can we approach God who is holy. I think thirdly is don't miss the point of the law. And we teach that, teach that to our children, teach that to our co-workers. We talk about what we're learning at church. We need to teach the, the purpose of the law. We need the law, don't we? We needed it. Remember when you come to understand your need for salvation, it was the law that brought you to that understanding. The law shows us our need and points us to the only one who can help us. And I think lastly is we need to praise the Lord, give honor to Jesus and love him because of what he's done for us. He's fulfilled the law for us. That doesn't mean that we throw the Old Testament out. No, we still need the Old Covenant. But, the, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And because he fulfilled the law, we can have a relationship with the Father. We're going to talk more about this in our small groups, but we're about out of time. If you have any questions about this text, which there probably will be many, please let me know. We can talk more about that. Maybe we'll answer questions on Wednesday night as well before we do our Old Testament review. Well, grace to you. Hope you have a wonderful day in the Lord. If those of you that are listening to us via Facebook, Pray the Lord will bring you home safely from your, from your weekend retreat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us and giving us a way, a way to know you, a way to have righteousness. Lord, because we can't attain it on our own. We fall miserably short. I'm thankful for the law that crushes us and shows us our need. I'm thankful that I was the 17-year-old boy saw my need for a Savior. And I pray that you would do that in the hearts of those who are hearing this teaching today, that you would allow them to see their need for you. Maybe they're frustrated because they're trying to do all the right things, trying to avoid all the wrong things, trying to be good on their own and yet they're falling miserably short. I pray that you would save that sinner's soul. Allow them to see how wonderful Jesus is and their need for him. Father, for us as a, a church, may we love your word, old covenant and new covenant. May we study it and read it and apply it to our lives. Father, thank you for Jesus. He's what the scriptures are about. He's what the Old Covenant points to. And He 
should be emulated and he should be praised. May we be a praising people this week as we leave today to apply your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.